so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return with your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And then when, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against the Al and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The word of the Lord. So last Sunday, we started a new uh, series of sermons, which will take us to Ascension Sunday. Uh, so it's a five-week sermon series on the book of Ruth, and uh, I've been trying to convince Ben that the book is really about Naomi, and he has convinced me that the book is really about Jesus. So <laughs> I think he's slightly more right than, than I am on this. Uh, we, uh, we looked at the beginning of Naomi's arc uh, in the first chapter of, of Ruth last week, and saw a woman that lost uh, her husband, that lost her homeland, that lost her children. And we saw her emptiness and her response to her emptiness and bitterness. And so we talked about how we interpret our circumstances and whether God's grace can reach into our emptiness and still make us joyful and hopeful even in the midst of that. So that's what we talked about last week. And we just started following Naomi's Ark starts with emptiness and, and loss, and then it ends with fullness and joy and praise. And we'll see that as we work through the book. You're welcome to read ahead and see how this story ends. I think it's very, very encouraging. So today we're looking at Naomi's 
journey back to Bethlehem, as Matt read for us. As you might remember, she needed to decide what to do with the two young women that she had with her. Her two daughters-in-law that are now without husbands, they're widows, no children, um, and she wants to go back to Bethlehem. It seems like that's the only thing she can do. And so what to do with these two women? She, Naomi, encourages them to go back to their families, to remarry, to rebuild their lives, to move on, to find closure, and to just move on from this awful situation, to separate from her, and uh, just go back to their lives in Moab. Orpah, one of the young women, listens to Naomi's advice and leaves her and returns home. And Ruth decides to come back to Bethlehem with Naomi. And that's what we're talking about today. We're looking at these two very different decisions that uh, Orpah and Ruth made. And then we will look at another decision, another choice that gives us the power to be courageous and compassionate like Ruth. So the sermon is built around three choices. One, a sensible choice that Orpah makes. Two, a curious choice that Ruth makes. And finally, a life-changing choice that Jesus makes for us. So that's my outline. Three points. As expected, I fulfilled my duty. I am a Trinitarian pastor, and you have three points. We will spend most of our time on the second point, so don't be alarmed when I jump to the second point quickly, and then you'll be waiting for a while for the third point to come, okay? All right, so let's look at the sensible choice that Orpah makes. When Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem, and for a while, you can kind of see it in the text, Orpah and Ruth both follow her, so they kind of go on the way together. Naomi, all the while, is encouraging them to go back, to leave her and go back home. She releases them from their obligation to her as their mother-in-law. And um, she does that because there's really no future for them if they stay with Naomi and especially return to Bethlehem with her. According to the law of Moses, and you may know that from your reading of Scripture, if a man dies and leaves a wife or even children... It is his brother's duty, according to the law, to marry her and to raise up the children for the deceased brother. So the idea is that if you have a brother, then he would marry your widow so that your seed, your children will continue, your family line will continue. He will take care of your family and he will do his duty as your relative. But in this particular situation, there are no brothers left. So the the only two children that Naomi and Elimelech had are gone, and Ruth and Orpah are widows, and there are no children, and Naomi is getting old. She doesn't think she's going to get married. She certainly doesn't think she's going to have more children. And so she thinks through it, and she says, the best thing for you girls to do is go home. Go to your families. There your parents will take care of you. You're still young. You can marry. You can have your own children. You can have the security of your own culture, your own family. And this makes a whole lot of sense for her to suggest that. In fact, I think she's not only suggesting that, she's really actively pushing them towards that decision. I think it would be easier for her if she went back to Bethlehem by herself and not had to care for these two young widows with her. Now remember, this is in the culture where family is everything, right? 
it's a very communal culture, and, and a woman wants to have children. That's how she would define herself in this culture. A man wants to have heirs. That's how a man would define himself in this culture. And so if these women stay with Naomi, they're giving all of that up. If you were to make a pros and cons list for Orpah and Ruth, you would come up with many more reasons for them to return to Moab, to their own families, than to go to Bethlehem with Naomi. In fact, the only reason that I think they could see at the time for them to stay with Naomi was their obligation to her. They were married to her children. They were obligated to be with her. And yet Naomi is releasing them from that. Naomi says, you, you need to go. She is encouraging them to leave her. And so Orpah makes this reasonable, sensible, logical, right decision to go home, to go to Moab, to her family. She kisses Naomi, goes back to her family in Moab. Uh, scholars speculate that Orpah did have a very nice life in Moab. She became quite a successful businesswoman and a cultural icon by hosting one of the most popular daytime, daytime television programs, the, <laughs> the Orpah Show. Quite a cultural force in Moab. We don't know any of this. <laughs> this is not in any of the commentaries. Don't go searching for that. I mostly want to show that her choice, Orpah's choice, was logical, it was reasonable, it was sensible, it was rational. Most people would even say it was wise. And it was wrong. It was the wrong choice. It made all sorts of sense for her to do that, and yet that decision was wrong. So let me contrast it with Ruth's choice, with her decision, and to see why Orpah's choice was, in fact, the wrong choice. Ruth's decision was not sensible. You can never say that she made a logical, rational, sensible choice. It was a very curious choice. This is what Ruth was choosing by deciding to move to Bethlehem with Naomi. Number one, she was attaching herself to an old, poor, lonely, bitter woman who, by the way, does not seem to appreciate Ruth all that much. Our text says when, when Naomi heard that Ruth was going with her, she just kind of left it at that, right? She just kind of said, okay, fine. You want to come with me, you go. She doesn't seem to list her in, the, in her bullet points of blessings that God has given her. She just kind of is there. So she's committing, Ruth is committing herself to be with Naomi for the rest of her life. Number two, she's choosing a life as an immigrant in a country that is at odds with her own nation. As you read the book of Ruth, she is frequently referred to as the Moabitess. I don't think people ever allowed her to forget where she came from. Moab and Israel are fighting each other. There's historical conflict between the two nations. And she decides to move to Israel, being a Moabite, and living a life of an immigrant. Thirdly, she is choosing a life as a marginalized minority. Not only a foreigner, of course that would be enough, but a single woman without income or property. And, and you will see, I think next week we're going to be talking about Ruth going to glean in Boaz's field. And Boaz says, I have commanded my young men not to touch you. Why is he doing that? Because she could very well be assaulted. 
marginal minority. Nobody would take her word for anything that happened. Nobody would trust her. Nobody cared what happened to her. She's choosing this kind of life. And fourthly, she is choosing widowhood and barrenness. In Moab, and, and these are words that, are, that communicate tragedy to this culture. They're, they're softer words for us now. We've, we've adjusted our expectations, and it's different. We see our identities differently. But in this culture, for a woman to be a widow and to be barren is, is a tragedy. And so in Moab, there was a possibility of marriage and children for Ruth. But there was no such prospect in Bethlehem for a foreigner a widow with no land, no income, a Moabitess to be married to somebody there, to produce children? She wasn't allowed even in the temple. I wanted to say that Ruth's future in Bethlehem was uncertain. That's kind of where I started. But I think it would be more accurate to say that Ruth's future in Bethlehem was certainly bad. And that's what she was looking at when she is making her decision to go with Naomi. She is not expecting a better life. Now, people move to other places because they expect a better life. She was not expecting a better life, and yet she chooses to stick with Naomi. And the question is, why? Why would she make this totally unreasonable decision, illogical, irrational decision? Why would she make the decision? Orpa saw through it, and she's like, okay, I'm going home. My family, they'll find me a husband. I'll, maybe I'll have children. I'll be fine. But Ruth stays with Naomi. Why? There's only one explanation that makes sense. There's only one benefit to her decision. In her list of pros and cons, there's only one positive. Do you know what it is? It's God. It's God. There's the only benefit for her to stay with Naomi and go to Bethlehem is God. There's no other benefit. There's no other upside. As she's making her list, a lot of things on, uh, on the con side and only one thing on the pro side, and that is God. Now let me show you from the text that it's true. Verse 15, we read that Orpah has gone back to her people and to her gods. This is Naomi saying that. She may have followed the religion of her husband, and parents-in-law while she lived with them, but now she returned to her family, to her own religion. Ruth, however, chooses the God of Israel over the gods of Moab. She chooses the God of Israel over her culture, her family, her national and ethnic allegiance, the hope of getting married and having children in the culture dominated by family aspirations. Everything else that mattered in her world she sacrificed to have the God of Israel. Look at verses 16 and 17. This is the, the famous speech that Ruth makes to Naomi that sometimes we quote at weddings and put on our, on our cards and stuff like that. Verse 16, Ruth said to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now keep in mind that Naomi doesn't really want Ruth to go with her. She would prefer for Ruth to return to Moab. 
But Ruth proclaims her loyalty to Naomi because to stick with Naomi is to stick with God. In her mind, if she separates from Naomi, she's going back to Moab, to her gods, to her culture, and she is no longer following the Lord. In verse 17, when she says, may the Lord do so to me, she uses a covenant name for God. This is not a generic God. Now, first she says, your God be my God. That's generic. She's basically saying, your culture, your religion be my culture, my religion. But later in verse 17, she, she calls God the Lord, which is the covenant name. She's, she's calling him Yahweh, which only an Israelite would call him that. Only a person in a covenant relationship with God would even dare to utter his name. And this is Ruth, the Moabitess, saying this about the God of Israel. This is what a convert would say. So somehow, we don't know how, but the witness of Naomi, Elimelech, her husband Malon, and Killian, somehow, however compromised and weak that witness was, somehow it convinced Ruth that the Lord... Yahweh is the one true God. Somehow she discerned the kindness of the Lord through the testimony and the life of that Israelite family. And the kindness of the covenant God brought Ruth to repentance. We have more indications in the text that Ruth's decision was motivated by her commitment to God. I think the, the author of Ruth wants us to get this point. There's the obvious, she calls God Yahweh, but there are subtle things, too. In verse 14, for example, it says that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. The same word translated as cling here is often used in the Bible to describe faithfulness to God. For example, in, in Deuteronomy 10.20, and there are many other passages, Deuteronomy 10.20, Israel is called to hold fast to the Lord, to cling to the Lord to bind your life up in the Lord's life. And so the same word is used describing Ruth's commitment to Naomi as is often used to describe God's people commitment to the Lord, their faithfulness to him. The author of the book is signaling to us that by clinging to Naomi, Ruth is clinging to God. And then we have Boaz's take on Ruth's decision. Again, everybody knew why she decided to go with Naomi. This is in uh, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We'll talk about Boaz next week. I'm so excited. One of my favorite characters in Scripture. If I had a son, I would name him Boaz. Ruth 2, 11, 12. This is how Boaz interprets Ruth's decision. He says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord, Yahweh, repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz is looking at Ruth's decision, this illogical, irrational decision to go with Naomi. And he says, I know why you decided to come here. I know why you decided to leave your father, mother, your culture, all of that. Because you sought refuge under the wings of the Lord. So what Ruth is doing is she's saying, I'm forsaking all of that, everything that's important in my world, so that I could have God, so that I could have the Lord, the God of Israel. This curious, 
unusual, unreasonable, irrational, illogical choice was the choice of a converted person. For Ruth, this made all sorts of sense. On the one hand, she had family, culture, security. On the other hand, she had God. And in her eyes, because she was really converted, she was a real believer, God was immeasurably more important to her. He was the treasure worth giving everything up for. He was the pearl of great price that she was willing to sell everything to get. Orpah made a sensible choice of an unbeliever. Ruth made a courageous and yet incredibly safe choice of a Christian. When you read some of the older writers, and by older I mean like 17, 1800s, you would often uh, come across this phrase. They would be describing someone's conversion, and they would say he or she was, was soundly converted. Soundly converted. The reason they did that, I think, is far as I can tell, is, is because they were functioning in nominally Christian countries, and so everybody was a Christian. But then some people were really Christians. See, some people were really changed by God, and they were soundly converted, meaning they really had a vibrant, real relationship with Christ. Apart from their culture, apart from their family, apart from their ethnicity, they were really Christian. And so when a change happened from being a nominal, cultural Christian to being a real Christian, they would describe it as a sound conversion. They were soundly converted. I like that phrase. And I think of that in terms of Orpah and Ruth. Orpah was a nominal Christian who made a sensible, according to the world, decision. Ruth had been soundly converted and made a hard decision in faith. Very different. They seem like they're the same at first. But this crisis, this decision, reveals to us where their hearts really were and what they really thought of God. Ruth's conversion was not just a change in religious allegiances. Uh, I know that, I don't think it's the case much anymore today, but in previous generations, if you were a Protestant and you were marrying a Catholic, you would have to convert to Catholicism. In fact, I was talking to somebody at Starbucks and, and he was saying, well, I grew up Lutheran, and Lutheran, then I met my wife, and then I converted to Catholicism. The end of the story, he's not involved anywhere, doesn't care about anything. But he had to go through the motions. To marry that woman who was Catholic, he had to go through the motions to talk to the priest, to go through catechism, probably get baptized or some kind of other ritual. And that's a change in religious allegiance. I don't think it meant much to him or many other people who, who do that, who used to do that. You just simply change your religious affiliation. You say, well, I used to be Lutheran, now I'm Catholic. Many people have stories like that. I think that's Orpah's story. You know, she, she married Killian. Killian was an Israelite. He had this religious faith. And Orpah said, okay, I'm just going to convert to your faith so we can be married. Now, Ruth did the same thing, except that she really converted. And it wasn't just a religious affiliation change, but it was a whole identity change for her. She became a different person, a person who believed and followed the God of Israel. Her decision was ultimately about God and her relationship with him. Now, when you think about Ruth's conversion, 
Moabite marrying this Israelite, converting to his religion. When you think about her choice to follow Naomi, it defies human wisdom. It doesn't make sense. This kind of deep transformation leading to these kind of illogical, irrational choices does not make sense to us. In fact, I think all sound conversions defy human wisdom. And I'm reading this book by Rosaria Butterfield, and she, it's, it's her spiritual memoir is what I'm reading, um, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, I think it's called. And, and, and she's talking about her dramatic conversion from an atheistic, anti-Christian athe- uh, activist and postmodernist writer and lecturer, college professor, to a follower of Christ. And she was soundly converted. It's a, it's a great story. And this is how she begins her book, her story. She says, How do I tell you about my conversion to Christianity without making it sound like an alien abduction or a train wreck? says, truth be told, it felt like a little of both. The language normally used to describe this odd miracle does not work for me. I didn't read one of those tacky self-help books with a thin coating of Christian themes, examine my life against the tenet of the Bible, the way one might hold up one car insurance policy against all others and cleanly and logically make a decision for Christ. While I did make choices along the path of this journey, they never felt logical, risk-free, or sane. I think she's absolutely right. And I think this is how Ruth would describe her conversion. Like Butterfield, like many others, like many of us here, Ruth was soundly converted. And so she made the only decision that made sense given her relationship with God. So on the one hand, you would say, this is irrational, illogical decision. On the other hand, you would say, knowing who she was before God, knowing her relationship with God, that's the only decision that made sense. Yes, she was sacrificing everything, but she also was incredibly safe in her relationship with God. As I thought about Ruth's conversion and how she made decisions, I realized that today... Many people in our churches resemble Orpah rather than Ruth. I'm afraid our churches are full of half-converted Christians. The gospel is one of the many apps on our phones, so it's ready to be opened if we feel that we need to consult God about a particular decision. We can always delete the app if we get too attached to another app or we run out of space in our lives. Our faith is just one of many factors influencing our decisions. Many of us are sensible people who make good decisions considering family and jobs and financial advantages, relationships, comfort, security, and so on. We might even throw God into the mix. But few of us make decisions like Ruth where the only apparent benefit is God himself. In many of our churches, half-conversions are inevitable. Instead of calling people to soundly, to be soundly converted to Jesus, we strive to accommodate increasingly more people with increasingly lower commitment to the Lord. 
When we invite people to embrace Christ, we often imply or sometimes even explicitly state that accepting Christ does not necessarily demand rejecting anything else. When we present Jesus to people, both to believers and unbelievers, we present him as a king who does not care about loyalty, as a general who gives no orders, a savior who is not concerned with our sins. In many of our churches, Jesus is more of a spiritual advisor than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that he actually is. We suggest that you add Jesus to your life, or at least to the parts of your life that we think are okay. We present conversion as an adjustment, not as a transformation. As an improvement, not a regeneration. As a good next step, and not a birth from above. As a change in religious affiliation, and not a receiving a whole new identity. Many of our churches need to take responsibility for producing generations of sensible, half-converted Christians. We allow faith without repentance, grace without gratitude, joy without suffering, prayer without fasting, worship without kneeling, confession without brokenness, hearing without doing, holiness without discipline, fruitfulness without faithfulness, technique without transformation, leadership without humility, and age without maturity. We accept attendance without involvement, participation without relationships, community without inconvenience, commitment without sacrifice, authenticity without change, optimism without hope, love without vulnerability, and triumphs without trials. Friends, it's no wonder that our churches are full of half-converted people. We preach the gospel without a real challenge and ultimately without real power. I wonder if this resonates with you this morning. Have you been soundly converted? When Scripture describes this call to Jesus, just read those passages and compare them with how we present this opportunity of life with Christ. Jesus, for example, in, in Luke 9.23, one of the, it's a famous passage. All of us know the passage. Luke 9.23. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus is not looking for half-hearted followers. Notice how Jesus challenges us. If you want to follow me, you deny yourself. Everything that's important to you, everything that's important in your world, you deny that, you pick up your cross and you follow me. We just sang the song, to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. My life is bound up with him. Is that real to us? That my hope is only Jesus. Not Jesus and a bunch of other stuff, but only Jesus. And my life is bound up with him. So my identity is, is I cannot see myself apart from him. 
So when I make a decision, my question is, what does he want? Not was the sensible, wise, reasonable decision. When he calls you, he promises a complete change of identity. When you come to Christ, everything is placed under his rule. And, and by the way, I do mean everything. I mean everything has to be placed under his rule. If you follow him, Jesus says, you deny everything, and you come to me and you place everything under my rule, which means politics, sexuality, wealth, our schedules, retirement plans, job choices, relationships, everything. When we come to Jesus, when we are soundly converted, we say to him, Lord, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. When you rise, I will rise. Because even death cannot part me from you. Your work shall be my work. Your glory shall be my desire. Your word shall be my law. Your heart shall be my heart. That's, these are words of a converted, of a soundly converted person. Following Christ is not a sensible choice. We cannot convince others, unbelievers, unregenerate, not given a, a new life by the Holy Spirit, we cannot convince them that it makes sense to follow Jesus. It doesn't make sense to follow Jesus. And Scripture talks about it in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So entrusting your life to Christ alone without a safety net of family and culture is foolish. It's stupid in the eyes of the, the world. Of course it is. Why would anybody do that? It's unwise. But the world's logic, the world's rationality, the world's wisdom leads to death. The gospel call to follow and trust Jesus alone is salvation to those who embrace it. But you don't know it's salvation until you embrace it. And so it's a choice that's not sensible, and yet it's a choice that makes all sorts of sense. That's the paradox of Christianity. I'm asking you to consider today whether you are more like Orpah or like Ruth. Are you half converted, only hanging on to Christianity because it fits in your life right now, it works nicely right now, because it makes sense, because it aligns with your politics or your morality? Is that why you're hanging on to Christ? If that's the case, you're half converted. You have not made a full commitment to him. And by being half converted, you're not converted at all. Or have you been soundly converted, making decisions based on God's word and God's will when God is the only upside? Please take me seriously. Please consider your own lives, your own hearts, and see whether you are half converted or whether you are soundly converted and following Jesus alone. To be soundly converted, to live a courageous life focused on God, to make decisions like Ruth did, we need to understand and be deeply affected by another choice. Everything I've said so far, you cannot do on your own. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to be 
courageous like Ruth. I'm just going to make these hard choices. You can't do it. Because it doesn't make sense unless you have been affected by this other choice that another person did. Of course, I'm talking about the choice that Jesus made in coming, suffering, and dying, and rising again. When you think about the gospel in terms of the plot of the book of Ruth, which, of course, all scripture is inspired, all of it fits together, all of it whispers Jesus' name. When you apply these categories to Jesus and you realize that Jesus loved everything to be with us, he was facing a similar choice that Ruth was facing. And Jesus loved everything to be with us. He loved the security of the Trinitarian love, loved his culture, as it were. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's given that up. He's leaving that for our sake. He gave up his throne as the world's creator and ruler and became his servant. He gave up his majesty and beauty and instead was despised and rejected by men. He gave up his eternal joy, the eternal divine fulfillment, and became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He put his reputation, his name, on the line for us. It's amazing to meditate on how much Jesus sacrificed just to help me, just to save me, just to be with me. In his decision to do that, Jesus said, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And he became human, one of us. Literally living where we live, literally lodging where we lodge. He said, your people shall be my people and my God your God. By identifying with us, he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And by that, by that transaction on the cross, our people became his people, but his God became our God. He said, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And he was placed in someone else's tomb because he died for someone else's sin. Jesus said, may the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, by death parts me from you. And then he went to death because he wanted to be with us forever. And by the way, the death he went through was divine punish punishment for the sins of his people. The Lord did so to him and more also because of our sins. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus' choice to come and save us, to forever unite himself to us, like Ruth did with Naomi, changes our lives. It's a life-changing choice. His kindness brings us to repentance and to a sound conversion. I'll finish with these words. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. My prayer is that his mercy has found out you this morning as well.